Welcome to The Great Social Experiment, Episode 6. April 1961. If you were a member of the Women's Auxiliary or were a friend of someone who was, chances are you got invited to a ladies' coffee party. One of thousands across the country. There was the normal chit-chat, but the main draw, what everyone came for, was a vinyl record, the cover of which featured a handsome Hollywood actor. It wasn't a song, so when the hostess placed it on the record player, everyone gathered around in silence. My name is Ronald Reagan. I have been asked to talk on... uh several subjects that have to do with the problems of the day. It must seem presumptuous to some of you that a member of my profession would stand here and attempt to talk to anyone on serious problems that face the nation and the world. But he didn't speak about several subjects. Really? Just one. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. The whole address was essentially an 11-minute long attack ad on what was then one of the precursors of what we know today as Medicare. Now, the American people, if you put it to them about socialized medicine and gave them a chance to choose, would unhesitatingly vote against it. We had an example of this under the Truman administration. It was proposed that we have a compulsory health insurance program for all people in the United States, and, of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. Every man should have the right to a decent home, the right to an education, the right to adequate medical care. That was President Truman pushing for a national health insurance system. The bill ultimately failed in Congress, partly because Truman viewed health care as part of a larger package of civil rights. Philadelphia's convention hall is jammed. And this was a year later at the Democratic National Convention. Even as Rayburn tries for order, the convention's most crucial battle is being fought in the platform committee off the convention floor. The committee overwhelmingly rejects an amendment strongly supporting the president's civil rights program. Then, when Southern Democrats refused to make civil rights part of the party's official platform? Northern Democrats forced this amendment to the floor. In a stunning upset vote, the delegates approved the North's plank. Truman got his way. And the response? The long-threatened walkout is led by Handy Ellis, Alabama chairman. And we bid you goodbye. Many delegates literally walked out. Half of Alabama's 26-man Democratic delegation strides angrily from the convention hall, followed by the entire Mississippi delegation. Goodbye, Harry! Goodbye, Harry! Which gets us back to this. And, of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. Because that isn't totally accurate. Truman's health care bill failed in Congress not because the American people were against it, Polls actually showed 75% of Americans supported it. It failed for two reasons. First, because those same Southern Democrats, those chanting, Goodbye, Harry, Harry," on their way out of the convention, 
feared it would lead to the racial integration of hospitals in the South. And they were wise to think that, as we'll see later. The second and bigger reason was because of the insurmountable lobbying of special interests. Their story? Well, pretty much the same story we've always heard. The rise of socialism has never been more clear. Turn America into a socialist country. Even saying the U.S. could become the next Venezuela. That they're going to take away your benefits. They're going to take away your health care. The idea that government-guaranteed health care is just one stepping stone on the way to full-blown socialism. Socialized medicine is the keystone in the arc of the socialist state. And what ladies' coffee party could they have gotten this idea from? (laughs) Well, listen. Today, the relationship between patient and doctor in this country is something to be envied any place. The privacy, the care that is given to a person, the right to choose a doctor, the right to go from one doctor to the other. But let's also look from the other side at the freedom the doctor loses. A doctor would be reluctant to say this. Well, like you, I'm only a patient, so I can say it in his behalf. The doctor begins to lose freedoms. It's like telling a lie, and one leads to another. First, you decide that the doctor can have so many patients. They're equally divided among the various doctors by the government. But then the doctors aren't equally divided geographically. So a doctor decides he wants to practice in one town, And the government has to say to him, you can't live in that town. They already have enough doctors. You have to go someplace else. And from here, it's only a short step to dictating where he will go. This is a freedom that I wonder whether any of us have the right to take from any human being. I know how I'd feel if you, my fellow citizens, decided that to be an actor, I had to become a government employee and work in a national theater. Take it into your own occupation or that of your husband. All of us can see what happens once you establish the precedent that the government can determine a man's working place and his working methods, determine his employment. From here, it's a short step to all the rest of socialism, to determining his pay. And pretty soon, your son won't decide when he's in school where he will go or what he will do for a living. He will wait for the government to tell him where he will go to work and what he will do. That is what Reagan said Americans had to fear for Medicare. Now. We know that didn't happen. And we also know that countries all around the world, which have implemented different types of government-insured healthcare, still have thriving capitalist societies. Even in the United Kingdom, where the government owns the whole health system. And this could be because there is no real example today of a pure socialist country. Not Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea. Vietnam, or China. Socialism, in its purest form, is essentially a system in which the government, for the collective people, owns all means of production. And today, that simply doesn't exist. But let's step back and take a look at what happened when the government created a government-guaranteed system to treat kidney failure, perhaps the closest thing to a single payer we've had. Before the government stepped in, as you can remember, dialysis was extremely expensive, practically inaccessible to most patients, and only offered at select hospitals. Compared to the rest of medicine, the field of nephrology was, well... Knowledge of kidney disease 
is really not very widespread among the public or among the general medical population, in fact. This is quite in distinction to Europe, for example, where there's a field called nephrology. So if you were a doctor and wanted to work with dialysis patients, you didn't have many options. Not because the government said so. He will wait for the government to tell him where he will go to work and what he will do. But because those jobs didn't exist. But the government's coverage changed that. With guaranteed payment, the dialysis industry exploded. Clinics started popping up everywhere. And today, if you're a new nephrologist just entering the field, you can live anywhere. And most importantly, for hundreds of thousands of patients, access to what otherwise would have been unaffordable dialysis has been an indispensable life raft. Which must sound strange after a whole series investigating how this system has fallen short. The difference is not who is paying, but how. It really depends on the specifics of the system put in play. Economist Professor Elison. I do think it's a game that, to a large extent, we make the rules of. And I think there are ways you can set those rules so that we can align individual altruism with the self-seeking incentives that people are so motivated by. You could imagine a world, and it is very different from the world we live in, where even DeVita and Fresenius, they may want people to have transplants. Ask an economist who's to blame for our shortfalls in kidney care, and they won't point to DeVita or Fresenius or doctors or any of the transplant centers. To them, they're an easy scapegoat, a shirk of responsibility, that those organizations are just responding to the policies and the financial incentives they're given. That when you rig the game to lead a thirsty horse to water, don't be baffled, shocked, or surprised when they take a drink. And who's tugging on those reins? Who's leading that horse to water? Who creates the policies which shape the financial incentives that they're given? We do. Medicare and our elected representatives put the onus of transplant education on dialysis clinics instead of doctors. They have financially rewarded both the clinics and the doctors to keep patients on dialysis. They have deepened that conflict of interest by allowing doctors to own or own stakes in clinics. And they have disincentivized transplant centers with multiple policies from transplanting the most patients possible. They'd say that if we really want to improve kidney care, we have to change how we pay for that care. In fact, many economists would argue that if we really wanted to help patients waiting for a kidney, we should allow donors to be compensated. It's a controversial idea. Opponents say it would exploit the poor. And proponents say it would actually help the poor, since most people on dialysis are poor. They'd also ask how it's fair that almost everyone, the surgeon, hospital, transplant nephrologist, the organ procurement organization, pharmaceutical companies, and all the supporting staff get to make money from transplants except for the person being cut open. Is that fair? If we pay an army to go to war, is it so inconceivable? to have a regulated kidney market to compensate donors for saving a life. The Islamic Republic of Iran doesn't think so, 
And they're the only country in the world that, for all intents and purposes, has no wait list. As the old saying goes, follow the money. And with kidney care, the financial incentives have clearly been misaligned. But what are the financial incentives of our larger healthcare system? Well, that actually doesn't have a simple answer because the U.S. doesn't have one system, but a convoluted patchwork of systems. There's government-funded insurance like Medicare and Medicaid. There's the VA, which both insures and provides care to our vets. There's private employer-based coverage. There's private individual coverage. There's private integrated systems like Kaiser Permanente, which, like the VA, serve as both insurer and provider. We have for-profit hospitals, non-profit hospitals, community hospitals. We have gold healthcare plans, silver and bronze, supplemental plans, advantage plans, Medicare parts A, B, C, and D, HMOs, PPOs, EPOs, the list goes on. And all of these parts have their own policies and incentives. But in general, we have what's called a fee-for-service system, which essentially incentivizes volume, regardless of outcomes. In a similar way that kidney doctors and dialysis clinics are incentivized to see as many patients as possible. Just to get you in and get you out. So does our larger system. But in general, and here's the kicker, without some of the spending and quality safeguards that Medicare imposes on kidney care. Remember how nephrologists are paid a flat fee per month? Well, that's to keep spending in check. And believe it or not, dialysis clinics, their pay is actually influenced by quality metrics like infection and hospitalization rates. Now, throw out all those safeguards and you're moving towards a fee-for-service system. The more patients, tests, and procedures, the more money. And that system works beautifully for, say, a restaurant, which is rewarded for keeping a full house. But in medicine, in a perfect world, we'd want our hospitals to be empty, right? In the same way we'd want dialysis clinics to be empty. If you really wanted to do this well... Here again, Dr. Summit Mohan. You would have a system that prioritizes value, measured quality of care, and did it in a thoughtful manner with the recognition that policies have unintended consequences. And, and you start with that premise, and then you use that in the design process that's how you are going to get to a better healthcare system. We have to focus on value, and we have to reward good value care. Essentially, rewarding health. But good value care, the most valuable component of that, if you really want it, is you have to provide physicians the ability to spend time with patients. And frankly, the way the healthcare system is set up, you don't have the ability or the luxury of spending the time to do this with patients, right? That's why concierge medicine even exists. It's because physicians are rushed and they don't have the ability to spend the time necessary to be able to fully engage with patients. And I think that is a huge part of the challenge. The way we pay for medicine doesn't incentivize health. It incentivizes volume and speed. And when you combine that with the fact that we have so many uninsured and underinsured people in our country, it starts to paint a clearer picture, at least in part, 
how we ended up with so many people on dialysis in the first place. Which gets us to a long-awaited question and answer that by now you've probably been wondering. And that is, what actually causes kidney failure? The most common reasons why the kidneys fail in the United States is diabetes and high blood pressure. Again, Dr. Janice Lee. It can take years to develop kidney failure. We have a term we use, chronic kidney disease. That can take years for the kidneys to worsen. How many people in the U.S. do you know? There's millions of people in the early stages of kidney disease that over time, if they live long enough, may end up on uh, dialysis or need a transplant. 30 million people, according to the CDC, have chronic kidney disease, about 15% of U.S. adults. Their kidney function is slowly diminishing. And the scary part is that the overwhelming majority of them probably don't even know it. That's what is really important about knowing about kidney diseases oftentimes can be asymptomatic until it's really in stage. Some people don't have symptoms until they're less than 20%, even some less than 15%. As for Lance, how long were you taking the supplement? I took it probably for a year. He had no clue the diet supplement was destroying his kidneys. Well, that's fuzzy in my mind because... And Tony, like 40 to 50% of patients, he just suddenly started feeling sick. Those good people, you know, the EMTs took care of me. They brought me to the hospital. Doctors call this crashing into dialysis. No warning, no nothing. So much so that they stuck a catheter in my neck and... Gave me dialysis like right away, like immediately. Asymptomatic, which develops over time, but no different than most of the other leading causes of death in the United States. Cholesterol-causing heart disease, chronic lower respiratory disease, strokes, diabetes. Out of the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States, which includes kidney disease, the majority generally fall into categories that are either preventable or treatable if caught early. But American healthcare doesn't incentivize prevention or primary care. Why? In a recent study published by the CDC, which summarized the opinions of healthcare leaders, financial considerations were emphasized the most. That specialized care, treating disease, is more lucrative than preventing it that healthcare systems aren't measured by outcomes, and that payment is based on volume instead of value. And of course, all of this assumes that you actually have healthcare in the first place. But in 2020, a full 43% of working-age Americans were either uninsured, underinsured, or had a gap in coverage. Those that were totally uninsured, disproportionately Latino and Black. This is all to say that our system doesn't incentivize health from either the provider side or the patient side. And it's not necessarily an either-or situation. It's often a combination of both. Those good people, you know, the EMTs, took care of me. They brought me to the hospital. Let's rewind his story for a minute. I was not aware, you know. I, I wasn't educated to... <sighs> 
It's hard to admit this, you know. Like 42% of U.S. adults, Tony was obese. Very, very overweight. I, you know, I had very high blood pressure. He admittedly never led a healthy lifestyle. And he was certainly reminded of that at his checkups over the years. Get rid of salt, watch my diet, exercise, the routine things that they tell you. But they also repeatedly told him one more thing. Of course, they would take a urine sample and everything else. And they, my creatinine was um, bad, was very high. And it's been that way for decades. Type in, what does high creatinine mean? In a simple Google search. And right there at the top of the page, it reads, a high creatinine level generally means your kidneys aren't working well. Did you even know that creatinine had anything to do with kidneys? Actually, no, I didn't. So no one said, hey, you're losing function in your kidney. No one said anything. Yeah, that's correct. You don't have the ability or the luxury of spending the time to do this. Volume. The routine things that they tell you. Overvalue. And you were discharged. Discharged. I went home. I was home for five days. And then I slowly declined again. I just, I just knew it was happening. And uh, so I had to call 911 again, and they came and got me. When they discharged you from the hospital the first time, you were aware that you had poor kidney function. Correct. They didn't think it was... And I thought they fixed it because they gave me dialysis. Volume? Oh, so you thought it was a one-and-done thing. Yeah. So you were in the hospital for five days. Five days. And then that whole time... You weren't told you had a chronic issue? No, I didn't. No one told me that. Overvalue. Before you called the paramedics, when was the last time you were at the doctor? Well, um, I don't remember. It was a long time. Why such a long time? Well, because uh, after Curtis passed away nine years ago, he was my partner, uh, and I was under his insurance since I had gotten laid off in 2009 and then he got he got cancer and once the insurance lapsed i couldn't go nine years ago healthcare is incredibly complex if it can teach us anything it's not just that financial incentives matter but that the policies that drive those incentives are powerful they influence all our behavior and sometimes in ways we aren't conscious of. Search the globe and you won't find an example of a perfect healthcare system, but you will find many examples of systems that are less complex, that spend less, and that better align incentives, all while providing universal coverage. Canada, the UK, France, Germany, the Nordic countries, Israel, Australia, the usual suspects we often hear about. And while pundits and politicians lump them together, by no means are they a monolith. Some use a single payer, some don't. Some have longer waits to see a specialist than we do, like Canada and the United Kingdom, and some have shorter waits, like France and Germany. But grouped with all of them, the U.S. has the lowest life expectancy, the highest suicide rate, the highest burden of chronic disease, fewer physician visits, the highest number of preventable hospitalizations, and the highest rate of avoidable deaths. And not shockingly, all those countries have a lower prevalence of kidney failure. 
on average, between half to a third of what we have. For transplant, just flip the graph. In general, those countries have between 1.3 to 2.4 times the amount of people living with a transplant as compared to dialysis. And again, these countries are spending only half to two-thirds of what we spend per person while covering everyone, which we don't. So on the one hand, the government and Medicare clearly fumbled many parts of kidney care. And knowing that could lead anyone to believe that government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. That when thinking about how we can improve our healthcare system, the most prudent thing to do is to keep the government out. Let the invisible hand of the free market figure it out. And on the other hand, if that were the case, why hasn't the free market already figured it out? Clearly, what we've been doing hasn't been working. And can healthcare ever really be a free market? People don't control when they get sick or get into an accident. And when you do have a medical emergency, no one has the time to do a Yelp search for the best and most affordable hospitals. And even if they did have the time, that information isn't available. And even if it was available, after everything that we've seen with kidney care and the power of financial incentives, would you really trust a healthcare system that was unregulated? We've all lay witness to an unregulated healthcare market. Patients are denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions. They go bankrupt even with coverage because of catastrophic medical costs. Heck, there was a time not too long ago that hospitals could and did deny emergency treatment even to women in labor because of a person's inability to pay. But that was ultimately rectified by the government. And who signed that into law? My name is Ronald Reagan. In fact, compared to his younger self just getting into politics, when it actually came to governing, Ronald Reagan dramatically changed his tune on government involvement in healthcare. My fellow Americans... In an ironic twist... This afternoon, I'd like to spend a few moments discussing a decision I made this week. Reagan proposed the largest expansion to date... A major decision that's likely to affect virtually every family in America. ...of the very program. Under this proposal, Medicare itself would be amended to provide unlimited Medicare coverage. He once spoke out against. The difference between the two Reagans? The first was paid by a lobbying group when he just was getting into politics. And the second was after he was done running for office. By that point, he understood that there are some things that only the government can solve. And perhaps he had finally come to grasp with the biggest irony of the fight against socialized medicine in America. The reason why socialism failed and will always fail as an overall economic system, is because it ignores the basic tenets of human behavior. Why work hard if there's nothing to gain? What capitalism does best is it rewards innovation and efficiency, those most amazing products at the cheapest price. In other words, it rewards value. And again, the way we have paid for healthcare hasn't rewarded that. But there has been ever so slowly, a move towards valued care in the United States. And the leader of that 
not the free market or private insurance, but Medicare. We will be changing the way that we reimburse Medicare. We just saw this with kidney failure. Them to diagnose and treat patients earlier. Very In just the last decade, private health insurance costs per person have gone up twice as fast as the cost per person of Medicare and over three times as fast as the cost per person of Medicaid. And this is despite the fact that Medicare and Medicaid ensure older and riskier populations. The very fact that the same organization that misaligned the financial incentives with kidney care has otherwise provided the most value for patients in the U.S. shows that more than anything, it's not about who is paying, but how. It's about doing the hard work and understanding complex issues and crafting rules, regulations, and financial incentives to achieve an outcome. With kidney care, they got a lot of it wrong and are just starting to rectify it. But in many other ways, as you'll see, they have used the power of policy and financial incentive to dramatically transform healthcare in our country in some extraordinary ways that you might not know. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second bill of rights Most Americans alive today could be forgiven for not knowing Medicare's history and why presidents, going all the way back to FDR, viewed health care as a basic human right. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care. Before Medicare was passed in 1965, roughly half of all seniors were uninsured and about a quarter went without any medical care whatsoever because of the cost. And many of those that had no choice lost everything, just like people today. But Medicare changed that. President and Mrs. Johnson and Vice President Humphrey arrive for ceremonies that will make the Medicare bill a part of Social Security coverage. No longer will older Americans be denied the healing miracle of modern medicine. No longer will illness crush and destroy the savings that they have so carefully put away over a lifetime so that they might enjoy dignity in their later years. And with that, for the first time in our country's history, the elderly didn't face a choice between health care and economic ruin. But Medicare did something else, just as important, but much less known. Half of Alabama's 26-man Democratic delegation strides angrily from the convention hall. Remember those Southerners who feared the desegregation of hospitals? Followed by the entire Mississippi delegation. Well, before Medicare became law, there was a thousand segregated hospitals in the South. It would be no exaggeration to say that healthcare was one of the most powerful pillars of Jim Crow in the United States. It's hard to imagine today, but large swaths of the Black South had no access to hospitals whatsoever. And those that did were treated in Black-only hospitals or the segregated wings of white hospitals. Many Blacks were denied emergency care. Literally, access to hospitals was so dismal for them that Black childbirth often took place at home. But President Johnson was dead set on changing that and was adamant 
that any Medicare law would require hospitals to desegregate. For him, this wasn't up for negotiation. We stuck very, very close to principle, sometimes almost to the point of wondering whether the program would take off if we didn't give. This is Robert Ball, the late former commissioner of Social Security, giving a talk in 1997. We took the view that submitting plans for the desegregation of hospitals, as had been done in the area of education, would not be enough for a hospital to qualify. When the Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus the Board of Education that schools had to integrate, the federal government was met with massive resistance. President Eisenhower sends 500 troops of the 101st Airborne Division. Of the- President Eisenhower had to federalize the whole Arkansas National Guard and send in the army to escort nine black school children, famously known as the Little Rock Nine, to school and to their classes. This was three years after the Supreme Court ordered schools to integrate. Here is Eisenhower explaining his decision to the nation. During the past several years, many communities in our southern states have instituted public school plans for gradual progress in the enrollment and attendance of school children of all races. Schools submitted plans to integrate, which is what Robert Ball was talking about. That submitting plans for the desegregation of hospitals, as had been done in the area of education, would not be enough for a hospital to qualify. Because it took forever and was often disingenuous. School desegregation efforts didn't reach their peak until the early 70s, more than 15 years after the Supreme Court's order. And President Johnson wasn't going to let that happen with hospitals. Within just a few months of the program actually going into effect, We had a 1,000 inspectors visiting hospitals, mostly in the South, to check on whether blacks and whites were spread evenly through the hospital in two bedrooms, which was the new standard uh, for Medicare patients. Okay, why am I going this deep into the reasoning and enforcement of hospital integration, other than to say that it was a monumental milestone in racial equality. And the answer is because it worked immediately and without almost any problems whatsoever. Totally under the radar of most Americans, which is incredible given how Medicare was set up. In two bedrooms was the new standard for Medicare patients. It's one thing for your child to go to school with kids of a different race, but it's something entirely different to share a hospital bedroom and all the vulnerabilities that come with that. You have to remember, these are old people. They were people, almost without exception, who'd grown up in strictly segregated atmosphere. We're not talking about the angry parents of kids going to newly integrated schools. We're talking about their grandparents. So then why didn't Johnson have to send in the army like Eisenhower? Everyone was deeply concerned about people, how people would react to hospitals putting blacks and whites in the same rooms and wards in the South. 
This is a 1989 interview of Joseph Califano, Johnson's top domestic policy aide, and later the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. But there was such a barrel of money about to be dumped on the hospitals through Medicare that I don't think the president was ever concerned that he thought the, the, the amounts of money involved were so enormous. And on that score, he turned out to be right. There was such a barrel of money about to be dumped on the hospitals through Medicare that the president was never concerned. Unlike schools, hospitals had a huge financial incentive to integrate. And because of that, the average distance to the nearest hospital for African-Americans in the South literally plunged overnight. According to one study in Mississippi, by 50 miles. Not only were Blacks finally getting access to medical care, but the average life expectancy of all the elderly increased by 15% over the next two decades. The number living in poverty dropped by almost a third to 12%. And when you think about how incredible that is, there's a tendency to feel a certain pride in humanity that we as Americans rallied together and chose to provide health care and financial security to our grandparents because they're the most vulnerable. Except, sadly, that's not why they were chosen. How can you explain that with no experience in a federal health insurance plan, it was decided in the United States to choose to start the program with the elderly? Certainly the most unlikely group to start with that you could think of. They're bound to be more expensive, bound to be hospitalized more frequently, stay in longer, typically have multiple illnesses. Why did we pick that? Why not children or pregnant women and children, where obviously the payoffs would be greater over extended lifetime and actually not much medical care is needed usually? There's only one answer. That is, we picked what we thought we could get. They were chosen because they were the most politically feasible. We were just trying to get started with the thing that uh, had the most chance. A private insurance company wanting to cover the elderly, or frankly, anybody who's not healthy, is like a dialysis corporation advocating transplants. But they were an appealing group to pick because they were so hard to cover by private voluntary insurance. And they could not pay the premiums that would be required for coverage. As a matter of fact, the insurance industry was not too anxious to cover them. They made a big attempt toward the end of the fight, but it seemed mostly because they wanted to prevent the incursion of more government into the insurance industry generally rather than that they really, really wanted that business. The fight for universal health care has always been a tug of war between equity and special interests, something our politicians repeatedly remind us of. The function of the current health care system that we have to change is to make billions of dollars in profit for the insurance companies and the drug companies. While that may be true, there's one group that I've never heard Bernie Sanders mention that historically has done more than any other group 
to bury healthcare reform. Remember this, nine out of 10 things that I get in trouble on is because they lay around. This is Johnson in 1965, talking on the phone about pushing Medicare through Congress. They want to bring it up next week, Mr. Yeah, but you just tell them not to let it lay around. Do that. They want to, but they might not. Then that gets the doctors organized. Then they get the others organized. And I damn near kill my education bill letting it lay around. Don't let the bill lay around because that will let the doctors get organized. By doctors, Johnson is referring to the American Medical Association, which was, and still is, the largest association and lobbying group of physicians in the United States. We don't hear much about them because, politically, it's easier to vilify private insurance. But if you actually look, there is no other organization since World War II that has fought more against government funding and regulation in medicine than the AMA. Listen to this journalist ask President Truman a question during a press briefing. Uh, the, uh, American Medical Association, the American Medical Association announced a few days ago that announced a few days ago disbanding the group that has been fighting your health insurance program. That it is disbanding a group that is fighting your health insurance program. They said they considered that battle won and battle finished. They consider it a battle won and a battle finish. Do you consider it finished? I think what finished their battle was a speech, a certain speech. This is just Truman trying to save face. His bill was finished. And about a decade later... From Madison Square Garden in New York City, ABC News presents an address by the President of the United States. John F. Kennedy literally flew down to New York, rented out the most iconic venue in the country. The president is now entering the garden. And gave a televised speech to an overpacked crowd of thousands. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. All to push for the passage of a health care bill for the elderly. And he didn't call out the insurance industry or big pharma. But first we read that the AMA is against it, and they're entitled to be against it. And then he expressed what so many advocates of universal health care believe. In the first place, there isn't one person here who isn't indebted to the doctors of this country. That doctors are heroes. Children are not born on an eight-hour day. All of us have been the beneficiary of their health. This is not a campaign against doctors because doctors have joined with us. That many doctors do not share the view of the AMA. And I hope that one by one, the doctors of the United States will take the extraordinary step of not merely reading the journals and the publications of the AMA because I do not recognize the bill. That the media... He will wait for the government to tell him where he will go to work and what he will do. Is unrecognizable. To disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Divorced from reality. Some organizations have six, seven, and 800 people spreading mail across the country. We can write to our congressmen, to our senators. We can say right now that we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. The mail pours into the White House, into the Congress and Senator's office. So write 
It's as simple as finding just the name of your congressman or your senator. Congressmen and senators feel people are opposed to it. Even if we believe that he's on our side to begin with, right to strengthen his hand. This matter should not be left to a mail campaign. Write those letters now, call your friends and tell them to write. Where senators are inundated or congressmen, 25 and 30,000 letters. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. The instructions go out, write it in your own hand. Don't use the same words. The letters pour in in two or three weeks. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. The Woman's Auxiliary. If you don't do this, and if I don't do it. That coordinated Operation Coffee Cup. One of these days, you and I. Was the organized wing of doctors' wives. Are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Of the American Medical Association. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, over the 22-year span between 1998 and 2020, the AMA spent more on lobbying than any other organization except for two, and the most in healthcare. Now, to be clear, they're a political force not because they don't believe in universal healthcare. As doctors, they surely do. But They have fiercely resisted the government paying for it and the financial loss that that would almost surely entail. Without private payers, doctors would be left to bargain, if you could call it that, with just one customer, the government. So while doctors never really seem happy to deal with insurance companies, the two have found ways to be political allies. In response to Kennedy's speech at Madison Square Garden, The AMA did their own, calling private insurance one of the greatest social advances of our generation, to which millions of Americans already belong. The AMA looked at other countries with heavy government regulation and healthcare, be it single pairs or multi pairs, and noticed something that still holds true to this day. Doctors in those countries don't make as much money as those in the United States. Germany, for example, has a multi pair system but almost 90% of its insurers are nonprofits, and the salaries of doctors are capped. Simply put, for-profit private insurance in the United States reimburses doctors more than the government. And of course, the same holds true for hospitals and pharmaceutical companies too. And all of this is underpinned by our fee-for-service system. Think about it. If someone paid you, regardless how well you performed, that is, the value you provided, you'd probably think that's a pretty good deal too. The last thing you'd want is for the government to step in and regulate it. So we have a system that doesn't incentivize quality, a culture that rewards volume and speed and unnecessary tests, and doctors enter this Not with a financial leg up, but after enduring a gruelingly long education, hungry to make real money, and on average, between two and $300,000 in debt. I mean, what could go wrong? On the one hand, our country 
faces a healthcare crisis of cost, access, and quality of care. And on the other, none of the private players, and I mean none, have a financial incentive to solve it. What inspired you to become a doctor? Since I was probably six or seven years old, I wanted to be a doctor. And I was intrigued with um, science and school. Um, I liked the idea of helping people. I wanted to make a difference in the lives of people as I got older. And so that desire never left me to want to be a physician. The tragedy of U.S. healthcare isn't that a dialysis corporation or insurance company or pharmaceutical company or hospital would prioritize profit over patients. Because that was foreseeable. The tragedy is that it enlists the brightest and most compassionate minds our country can muster and thrust them into a system largely crafted by their own predecessors that doesn't incentivize and is sometimes prohibitive of them practicing the way they know they should. In my research for this project, I read a lot of articles, medical journals, but I also did less conventional research, right? And this is by no means a study. Before I wrapped up my interview at the corporate office of DeVita, I read something to Dr. Alan Nissenson, their chief medical officer emeritus. And I went on Glassdoor. Have you heard of Glassdoor? Yeah. Yeah. Glassdoor is a popular job search engine where current and former employees can anonymously post reviews of companies. I was interested in knowing what dialysis employees think of the company they work for. This was the featured review. This is on the DeVita homepage. I showed him a printed screenshot. The pros, awesome training. Awesome training, support, good salary, cultural diversity, and a flexible schedule. Flexible schedule. Con, for-profit organization. At times, it felt that the needs to meet financial numbers or the overall improved clinic score was more important than the individual patient care. But that is unfortunately what healthcare in the United States is. And this person gave the highest rating to the company. <laughs> Certainly, I didn't go through all of the DeVita postings, right? But I was like, oh, this is the featured view. And they gave the company a five-star rating. And I'm wondering, I guess I was wondering what your thoughts were. I'd say it reflects the tension in this country around healthcare. And it's not unique to DeVita. It's not unique to kidney care. It's you know, should profit be part of healthcare? Kidney care is just one specialty of a huge industry that has long been a source of tension. But tension is only created when two forces are pulling in opposite directions. And when it comes to our healthcare, that tension is baked in. But it doesn't have to be. Change is possible, both in kidney care and in our larger system. 
But if there's one thing that I've learned from producing this series is that for that to happen, doctors have to want it. They are both the glue that holds everything together and the engine without which nothing can run. Do they want a system that maximizes their own profits or one that aligns incentives with their greater mission? The answer to that poses tough questions regarding the role of profit, the role of government, and whether doctors themselves believe that they have a higher calling and special obligation to society. In other words, is healthcare a human right? Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Shasintu. Additional commissioned music by Salil Bayani and Mark Giovanni. A special thanks to Lance Jackson, Daryl Taylor, Tony Pandolfo, and Lakita Jackson for telling me their stories. And to the experts, Professor Rachel Patzer and Dr. Janice Lee of Emory University, Dr. Summit Mohan of Columbia University, Professor Paul Elison of Brigham Young University, Dr. Alan Nissenson of Davida, and dialysis technician Emmanuel Gonzalez. A big thanks to the experts you didn't hear, Drs. Leslie Spry and Velma Scantleberry, Senior Health Researcher Rosa Tikkanen and the Commonwealth Fund. Professor Frank Sloan of Duke University, dialysis nurse Steve Belcher, transplant patient Mikey Hahn, and Harvey Mysell of the Living Kidney Donor Network. I am unbelievably grateful to Professor Susan Seeger and law students Roxanne Marcus, Jenna Cowan, Jesse Wang, and Christine Kevarkova at the Press Freedom Project of the University of California Irvine Law School for vetting this series. Also, to Shelley Rosenfeld, Daniel Clone, Jason Kramer, Lisa Bolan, and Matt Malchaney for their help. And to my parents and brother, Joel, Cheryl, and Jared Chrisman for their many, many listens and notes. If you'd like this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.